Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined, as always, by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large. And Ann, at long last, we have a Quentin Tarantino movie going to the can. I'm so glad we were right about that. I was not going to let it go. Because here's the thing. We kept having people tell us, you know, Leo's going to be there. You know, Quentin's going. You know, they have a night set aside, you know. I mean, who? I don't know the specifics here of was it really not clear if it was ready or not, or did they just want to keep us in suspense? But Quentin Tarantino wants his movies at Cannes, and if there's even a possibility of him doing that, he's going to do it. So, of course... He just gave him some breathing room and gave him an out in case he didn't feel confident. What, What I'm excited about is that he wouldn't be bringing it if he wasn't confident, although... There's a good possibility that what he really wants is the friendliest audience on the planet. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you say if he wasn't confident, when is he not confident about what he's doing? Um, I mean, if guy, you're not, if you haven't finished your edit, you know, if you well, have, I don't know. He's, really, he's, he's going to go back and and do it. You know, he'll make it shorter if he has to. It, it'll be a test uh, run. Of course, I was just thinking back at and Can 2007 when Death Proof. Uh, premiered there after the catastrophic release of Grindhouse, where it was a totally different cut and was folded in with this Robert Rodriguez thing. I mean, Tarantino's always got a new vision for what he's doing. The Hateful Eight dropped on Netflix as a miniseries last week. So whether that or not that was really seen, interesting. Sorry. I cannot wait. Have you did you look at it? Did you have time? <laughs> no, in fact if I you would look at that, that. I would you, want to see it totally, but I, well, I haven't had thing. time either. How many people are actually watching? I mean, not to say that there, it's not a fascinating, uh, you know, sort of variation on the concept of a director's cut, but it's it, it it was a tough movie in the first place and and had a lot. It asked a lot of its audience, but perhaps this is the best fate is for people who really do want this sprawling Tarantino unleashed kind of experience to experience it in, in bite-sized well, pieces. I like the work. idea that he went in and, cause he spoke to, to slash film about it. It was, a, it's actually a fascinating interview for those of you who are Tarantino <laughs> aficionados. Um, just the idea that he would go back to all of the different, you know how people edit movies, they, they need to tell it from this point of view or that point of view. Each scene has to play out at a certain length. He could go back and look at all the different points of view and re-edit them into a different sequence and look at, you know, completely change the way that it played out. I love that idea. Yeah, but with respect to the new movie, it's really an open question. So the running time is two hours and 45 minutes, which is relatively palatable for, by Tarantino standards. It's in the so, usual realm. Yeah. So I guess the real open question we have now is just how much is this movie going to, you know, scratch that itch that Tarantino fans want versus everybody else? Because it's a it's big, expensive. 
studio movie, and this, right? And Sony is asking now. By the way, Sony's totally behind the can launch. They get it. They know that this is a good audience for him. The critics are going to be receptive. He's done very well there over the years, really well. Um, so I think I think this will be. Um, um, a question of of what Sony's expectations are and what they what what kind of it's going to cost a lot of money to release the movie and put it out there. I hope I hope it's accessible. I hope it's going to be commercial and artistic. But Can is really about artistic, isn't it? It. I mean, usually, but we'll see how good Rocket Man is, right? I mean, that's it's a commercial launch that's yeah. going to open up right yeah. afterwards. And, and you're as skeptical as I am that it's going to be artistic. And, and I'd, I'd be happily <laughs> be proven wrong by it. But I, no, we don't like, know. Well, I mean, yes, Ken is about the art. Ken is about the at least the perception of cinema as an art form from as many different angles as possible. And I think one of the things that's kind of cool about the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood situation is that it's also about celebrating the history of film. And this seems to be a, a, a major can auteur celebrating the history of film. It's like can crack. It's almost like it was conceived for can. Well, he gets to do, up. yeah, I, well, I, I wouldn't go that far, but he gets to, he gets to play around with period. But it's more like, a, I mean, I don't know. It feels, it has to do with Hollywood in a way because it's Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski and the Manson murders. And, it, and it's all set in the Hollywood milieu with the actor played by Leo DiCaprio, the fading Western star, and then his stuntman played by Brad Pitt. I was doing some very early Oscar, uh, you know, just laying out the landscape of what some of the films are going to be and some of the, the the stars who might be in the running. And I, you know, Brad Pitt playing a supporting role. That's interesting. I mean, I'm curious to see how big his role is and how big Margot Robbie's, Robbie's role is as Sharon Tate. We don't know. Presumably not that big, given the that this is the year of the. It's man a sprawling murder. ensemble. Yeah. I, well, she gets killed. Okay. I mean, spoiler alert. <laughs> not to not to point not out to too be bluntly. Um, no, uh, uh, but but the other the other question is when we see um, and I don't think they're showing it ahead of time. Although there's a junket in London, Rocket Man. One of the questions is whether they've gone for the R rating, the nude scenes, uh, the love scenes with Richard Madden. And Taryn Edgerton, um, there's going to be a hue and cry, and I hope they are prepared for this if they try to sanitize <laughs> the sexuality of Elton John. Well, I just don't even see the point. We, we, we just found out that the film after its can screen will uh, play at an LGBT festival so in Canada. Presumably, they're embracing this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, they, they have they, to. Did they accept the film sight unseen or not? I don't know. But that, I mean, if there is backlash and it's playing an LGBT festival, that that would be an issue. But it's, uh, but I think in, in the case of both of those movies, the can launch will be crucial to sort of defining the next stage of their lives, given the the scope and the kind. They, these are the flashiest films that will be at Can this year. Sorry, Jim Jarmusch. I mean, I'm more excited about. I'm uh, excited about Jim Jarmusch. But but, but I mean. I'm going to talk to Tilda. You're going to talk to Bill Murray. What's not to like? No, I mean, this is this is what's more exciting, I think, for us in context is the can opening night experience. But when Quentin comes to town, you know, that's that will be the biggest show. That will be the biggest and, show. And I think from the can perspective, to circle back on that, it, it's also worth pointing out 
Cannes needed this. If you look at the... the they have no red carpet except yeah, for opening night. This is it. Not they needed it desperately. As much as people may be excited about the new Pedro Almodovar film. Or the new Asif Kapadia, which got picked up by the, right, HBO. A documentary about a big soccer, soccer star, star or whatever. And say so it's like that stuff, that's about as big as you can get in the context. And then Stony Picture yeah. Classics did pick up Frankie, the Iris Sachs movie starring Isabel Huppert, who was a very big star in the Cannes firmament. Yeah, exactly. That's that's like a Cannes bubble sort of a movie. You know there's probably something worth checking out there, but it's not like it's going to resonate globally in the same way. So now they don't have to worry about that, which is actually really gratifying because we can go back to, we know that stuff's going to be on the calendar and it's going to generate a lot of heat. So we can go back to looking at the rest of the lineup to see, you know, where are the discoveries? What are the real palm contenders? What What is the jury going to be really arguing over? I love this stuff. Me too, of course. Good. And then your your um, Eggers movie ended up in Fortnite, which is actually sort of yeah, like a, your Eggers movie, like I own it or something. You, but, you, were, you, were, you were waxing eloquent about how that should have been, you know, a competition title. We'll, well see, I, we'll see I whether think, it should have um, been. I think it's going to be a very good movie. My my hopes are high, and I think they they should be for anyone who saw The Witch and saw how accomplished this director was, and the the buzz around it is that this one's black and white, uh, you know, sort of homage to silent cinema of sorts, and and it's got a supernatural component again with Willem Dafoe with Robert Pattinson. It's just a very uh, exciting kind of a movie, and the sort of thing where perhaps by putting it in director's Fortnite, it stands out in a bigger way kind of like when Gaspar Noe went to director's Fortnite last year with climax and ended up winning the second they sometimes do this with with genre films it's just a it's just a way out and by the way i do get annoyed with them i know that there's so much pressure to get these auteurs into the competition lineup that they end up with putting putting the documentaries and the animated films somewhere else they just do it every time, but um, I am excited by the uh, by the Asif Kapadia. So, so the other thing uh, I went to, I did a tribute with at the IDA last night with Werner Herzog. We went through his career and we showed clips, and he was just in great, great form. He had the audience laughing and in the palm of his hand. When is he not in great form? No, he really he's is. Walking he's a great, he's just great. And, and, uh, and, and basically, um, he said, well, I've been, and he's, he's in, you know, well into his seventies and he's, and he's in great shape and he's doing, working harder than ever, almost as if he's, he's running out of time. And one of the films is going to be in Cannes, this, uh, Japanese fiction film. He's very invested in the fact that he's not just identified with, with documentaries. That was very clear to me um, last night. Well, and, the thing that's interesting in that respect is that he's always been working in both modes. He's been making documentaries as long as he's been making features. It's just that he was most famous prior to Grizzly Man for movies like Fitzcarraldo and then in the last 20-ish years, or more like 15 years, he, the documentaries have, have gained more currency. It's interesting to, to recognize, as I was looking at his career, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a sort of close-up way, um, I was realizing how much Aguirre, Wrath of God, and uh, Fitzcarraldo played into, and the documentary Burden of Dreams, the Les Blanc documentary about the making of Fitzcarraldo, how they 
played into this mythological character of Werner yes. Herzog, who isn't who he's made out to be. Yes, he has been shot at, and he's been <laughs> in incredibly challenging had situations, over his head <laughs> you know, and all of that. Into volcanoes. He 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 actually didn't jump into any volcanoes. Well, if you've ever seen Le Soufflet, that I'm one he did. But then yeah. when he did Into the Inferno, yeah, it depends on what decade we're talking about and which volcano documentary. <laughs> he's attracted to go. volcanoes, which tells you a good deal. Now yeah. he's he's really he's really. I mean, and, and I said this one thing to him. I said I said basically, um, um, I, I see you as someone who's just dogged and determined, and you have this rhinoceros hide, and you won't take no for an answer. And he went. I have a human hide and I will take no for an answer. Wow, and he, he went on to tell me his, his, his no for an answer story, which was quite moving, actually. It had to do with the um, series that he did on Death Row. And there was a case where if he had included something in the movie, it would have affected the life of a man. And he didn't do it. Well, I can tell you a little bit about the can project that he has because I saw him briefly at a dinner at the Tribeca Film Festival. He was making the rounds there with his Gorbachev film, which that originally premiered last fall in, in uh, Toronto, but uh, was making its stateside premiere, or its stateside, it's, it's a U.S. premiere in, in New York. And, uh, and there was a little dinner. So I popped in and I was talking to him about this. I had, he had originally mentioned that he had been in Japan for this movie, uh, months ago when I'd seen him. And, and now that it was going to Cannes, it, what's, what's kind of fascinating about it is that it still seems very mysterious because it's so different as a narrative. Family Romance LLC, it's playing out of competition. He shot it in Japan in, within, in a couple of days with non-professional actors. Uh, he did all the camera work himself. He did it in real locations with hidden cameras, and it's all in Japanese, which he doesn't speak. Correct. So it's I asked him that question. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, of course, he said it's his greatest movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> and it's self-financed. I mean, it's kind of interesting, though, because the narr- it, it does sound different from a narrative standpoint than anything he's done lately, because his narrative features have never had the kind of scrappy, off-the-beaten-path kind of quality. Even when he does weird stuff... There's usually like a movie star in there who wants. They're usually to pretty polished. No, but one of the funny anecdotes from last night had it was an aside. We were talking about um, Bad Lieutenant, and and I made the claim that it was one of Nick Cage's best performances ever. And I was sort of saying to the audience, you know, it really is. <laughs> and Werner Herzog says, "Yeah." It's the best performance he's ever given. You know, that's of course he said that. these people do not lag for ego. Yeah, no, he always is kind of hilariously over the top. And I mean, is that true? I I guess so. Yeah, there. It, it's it's interesting because it it'll it gives him a lot of room to just mess around. The irony, of course, is that that movie, which didn't need to be called Bad Lieutenant and step all over the, the Abel Ferrara original, um, you know, created this this weird competition for for it, even though they're they're very different movies. And uh, Abel Ferrara's got his own movie coming to Cannes this year, so it's nice to see that both of those guys are still in the game. And it's but he had like... he had something in Tribeca as well. So, so yeah, so Ferrara that that's also notable and, and worth looking ahead to Cannes because 
he's he may wind up with four movies released this year. No, but Donner had one in, in Tribeca too. Yeah, well, he had his Gorbachev documentary. Right. Uh, but then Ferrara directed a documentary himself um, called uh, The Projectionist, which is about a, a New York theater owner who used to run porn theaters in the 70s and is still in the biz running a range of theaters across multiple boroughs. And it's sort of a it's a little scrappy, but it's a love letter to an, a different era of movie going, which is kind of the way Ferrara makes movies is just sort of they're, they're freewheeling portraits of a of a fading New York of sorts but he's still a very interesting narrative filmmaker he's got this personal film with Defoe called Tommaso also screening out of competition at Cannes with Willem Defoe playing a version of Ferrara but in addition to that his Pasolini movie with with um, Defoe Willem Defoe as Pasolini uh, which was made a couple of years ago is finally opening in the U.S. through Kino next week so they so there are those two films, and then there's the projectionist documentary, and then he just wrapped uh, one of his biggest movies in a long time, also starring Defoe, called Siberia, which we may see by the fall. So it's kind of it's kind of great to see these these auteur types who aren't on the Tarantino level in terms of necessarily like the resources, the commerciality of their work, but they're still chugging along. And, and you know, they're not, they're not, they, they are, they could be comparable. What I will say about Werner is that there's a German discipline to him as much as he goes rogue and, and puts albino alligators into, you know, French caves and, and all of that. And he has, I, I think what that, what that means is that he has a sort of uncanny way, uh, sense of, of how to entertain, you know, he talks about ecstatic, uh, reality you know he doesn't want to to keep to the facts but but at the same time i think in reality he's way more of a workaholic kind of work all the time guy who uh knows how to achieve a very difficult technical technical ends you know in and and doesn't whereas i think ferrara is much more of a crazy guy um who can't listen to anyone else and doesn't work with a team and and uh, only That's gave up mythology. drugs recently. <laughs> it's been a couple of years. I think he had a kid and stuff, but he carries that that. Uh, He's still brand. that guy. I mean, they're both they're both a little crazy, but a great artists tend to be crazy. That's sort of what makes them worth investing in to some degree. And, and but let me. I think they're crazy. I think they're idiosyncratic, both of them, but they're crazy in different ways. So, um, yeah, speaking of idiosyncratic filmmaking that goes against the grind, Avengers Endgame is making a gajillion dollars. <laughs> you know, I mean, have it's to so funny. You, you and all the other enthusiasts uh, for that movie, which, by the way, I perfectly well enjoyed. I have no issue with it. Um, but I, I, I sort of refuse to drink the, the Kool-Aid and, and get into this sort of... Um, you Am know, I it, it's I the be all and end all, and it's gonna get all these Oscars and everything. Um, you know, basically, even if you go through the the usual uh, Marvel, you know, what happens to Marvel movies and comic book movies is that they, you know, Black Panther's the best, most successful example, and it, it, and it went the farthest um, with all sort for all sorts of reasons having to do with Coogler being more of an auteur and and bringing in you know Ruth Carter and 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 
uh, you know, I, we, we could see that it had a chance because of this extraordinary originality that it had as the first big Black Panther story that was creating these worlds and creating these costumes and production design and all of that, which were the two, two of the Oscars it won along with, with score. But they tend to go with technicals. And Marvel doesn't even have that going for, I mean, Endgame doesn't even have that going for it. It's, it doesn't have original stuff. It's all old stuff. It's stuff they've done before. So your, your case is that Robert Downey Jr. should have a show. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. So that's the enthusiast side of it. So I, I enjoyed watching the movie again. I went to go see it with my wife over the last weekend and, um, and the crowd reaction is always interesting because you, you know where the beats are, but different things have different levels of response. And you, it, what's funny is you can kind of get a sense for, and very anecdotally, which which characters in this very populated universe are, are most well beloved by, you know, when people cheer, when different people show up. But, um, but I just kept thinking, okay, the movie really plays, it's a huge cultural phenomenon, an unprecedentedly large cultural and commercial phenomenon. And it, it plays to a large degree as a, a tribute to Robert Downey Jr.'s character. And so I came out of it thinking, given how ubiquitous this movie is and how much respect there is for it in the industry and, and, and what Marvel has pulled off here, could you tell a story from an award standpoint around what Robert Downey Jr. has achieved in the past decade? A major comeback created a, a, an iconic he had two. He had two Oscar nominations in the past, so it's not like he's not in in that in that particular zone. But um, the box office is going to be the best reward. Well, yeah, I mean, look, he can he can support generations of children. You know that that's there's no neither anybody's concerned about any of that. I think that just the award side of it was just this question of, you know, they. You could maybe squeeze out a supporting actor nomination for him. Although some people are debating that he's the lead in that movie, which I don't. Well, that's what I I, in 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 this one. I think it's it does come back to him enough where you could make that case. I was saying if you want to do a supporting actor case, do it for Chris Hemsworth because he's such he's He's hilarious. He's the scene stealer. There's a narrative there in this. I mean, you wouldn't be opposed my to that favorite one, thing. Right? Absolutely. Totally. There's, a, there's respect for what he does there, I think. In a really, it's sort of it's a surprise. Because that was a hard character to launch. He seemed like a bit of a punchline for a while. And then they embrace the punchline. And that really finds... It, the apotheosis of that process comes ahead in this movie when he becomes the dude, more or less. So <laughs> Slacker. There. Slacker hey, Thor. You don't have to spend a <laughs> that crazy was Kugler's line. <laughs> yeah, Slacker Thor is The question is how high is high going to be? And our um, indefatigable box office guy using the art of, um, uh, you know, you have to, you have to take the, um, the, the adjusted grosses if you're going to compare and contrast and in the, in the, and, and what he came up with was that for a movie in first release, which has nothing to, you know, if you do the math on, on that, this could get to a billion domestic for the first time be the first one to ever get to a billion domestic without um, re-releases, which, which is, is which is pretty amazing. It's amazing, and also I think should be it should be pointed out a little scary, right? Because of just how powerful 
one movie can be and, and what it means for all the competition and for just, you know, how powerful Disney is right now. Well, Disney is scary because if you looked at the numbers last weekend, it 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 it, it in the opening weekend it really uh, dominated in a way that pulled up all the Disney boats, but not the others, not the other studios. So our my my line right now is is that you know Hollywood thought that Netflix was the enemy, and now they're realizing. That that the one thing they have to worry about now is Disney Fox. And I feel for Fox too, because what, what's going on is this um, very uh, uh, rigorous uh, examination of all the release dates and figuring out what was invested and what they're going to put into each movie and when it's going to open and what kind of support it's going to get. So when I, again, when I'm looking at the Oscar race or something, and I see something like Woman in the Window, which is Fox 2000, which is a subsidiary of Fox that's being eliminated so it doesn't have a powerful ally at the head of it, Elizabeth Gabler. She's going to be leaving. She's looking for other jobs. Other people are trying to sign her up as we speak. Um, so you basically have um, a big uh, Amy Adams, Scott Rudin um, you know, movie that could be a big player and, and you don't know what kind of support Disney's going to be willing uh, to give it. It's going to be interesting to watch. And then Ad Astra um, is, is probably in the, going to come out in the fall. Right. And we don't know how good that is or if it's a real awards contender or not. But. It has Brad Pitt in it. So that much dictates and it costs a lot. So, right. it, so it, they're going to have to do a commercial release. What, what they may not have to do is a, is a festival release. It's, it's that, that's sort of the open question is, is, does it, is it the kind of movie that will benefit from that, that kind of framework or not? Right. right. It's, this is a bit inside baseball, but I was looking at the news that Alan Bergman and Alan Horn now are co-chairmen at, co-chairmen at Disney. This is very related to what we're talking yeah. about because I spoke to Alan Horn at the um, uh, party for Endgame and and brief, very very briefly, but but basically my fear is that you know I was worrying about him. I mean, it was like he has too much on his plate. Exactly. This made I sense to me. Think about all this stuff at once. It's too. So mad. he's he can't and 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 he was handling. You know, he was just, he was basically saying, "Okay, Kevin Feige, do your thing. Here's your budget." He really wasn't. You know, I don't think Alan Horn was in there tinkering with with the mechanics of something like Endgame, but but he does have uh, have to worry about Fox and and all of that, all of Somebody's those decisions, and he's got to fire a lot of people. Yeah. So so now there's someone to help him with all of those. It's too bad about that. I mean, I I don't envy the situation of Fox right now and how projects that may have seemed totally stable before are now sort of up in the air, but I suppose it'll all be clear. Well, the other uh, movement in the force is Amy Pascal going over to, to Universal, which is indicative of certain, um, you know, it, you, people perceived her as sort of the, 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 the princess with everything, you know, at the top of, of the, of the Sony food chain with the best deal, but of course the deal ran out. So well, she also so, had a rough 
going there because of what happened with her in the Sony hack. I mean, it was well, of, she was still chairman of Sony at that point, so right. she had that was part of what contributed to her 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 having to leave that right, job. Exactly. So this yeah. is sort of in some ways, it's like the next stage in that cycle of moving on to the next thing. Although it's a big loss, she brings in a lot of uh, energy and and. Um, you know, talent re relationships and all that kind of stuff. So it's well, good. that's it's good for them to have. Uh, I, let's. I think she's. I think she and and well, first of all, her her buddy Michael DeLuca is over at Universal having a a good time over there. He left Sony as well. Tom Rothman is a um, a, a very uh, hard charging executive, and I I do hear a lot of complaints out of Sony. You know, it's it's a tough place to work, but. Pascal could, could, you know, the world was her oyster. She could go wherever she wanted. So I think she's going to be, I think she thinks she's going to be happier. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes and out of it. able to do more of her own thing. I mean, part of what you see in her pattern is that she had to take a lot of her projects elsewhere. Exactly. So before we wrap up, we should touch on a new movie that opens because so often we are overwhelmed by other things happening and we don't get a chance to actually look at something in theaters long shot is is coming out i saw this back at south by southwest you caught up with it a little bit more recently i, I saw it at CinemaCon. yeah that's right at CinemaCon. so i think it's a it's a it's a fun movie it's a little on the a little too long it's in a little bumpy in parts but it's got a certain charm to it the fantasy that it puts forward of a of a romance uh, between a schlub, a schlub who gets to gets to have Charlize Theron fall in love with him. But the thing is, I, I the story about around like how that could actually happen drives me nuts because that part of the yes, the movie is a fantasy, but that's not the part of it that's hard to buy. The the, the fantasy is is the kind of political climate that it envisions under which Charlie Charlize Theron becomes basically a presidential candidate. Um, the it makes she, it pretty she good. goes from Secretary of State. Yeah, um, and then the president which, who's, who's well, that's what Hillary right. Clinton did, yeah. right? No, exactly. But I mean, it's it happens in a certain kind of loopy way with uh, the president, who's sort of this Trumpian character. He was he's a, he's a buffoon, actor. yeah. In other words, I think he he wants to go back to Play, played. <laughs> he's good. He's played he's by very Bob good. Exactly. Um, no, but here's the thing. I, I, what I like about the movie, I like this movie a lot. I really enjoyed it and I laughed my head off. And truth be told, I really like Seth Rogen. I think he's a better actor than a lot of people give him credit for. And I think he um, absolutely uh, makes you buy the idea that he's smart and sharp and funny and that they knew each other as kids. That's, that's part I, that's of it. The point I was trying to make is like, okay, it's not just like the schlubby guy gets a hot chick or whatever the crass reduction of all these people have been putting out there. Like they have a history together. Maybe she's- And they make it believable. It. Yeah, there's like a nostalgia thing. And then like the thing that they uh, bond, like the thing that finally gets them together romantically is- have drugs. Been, yeah, <laughs> drugs. Like, their lives are in danger at one point. There, there are things that happen that kind of allow you to buy into the relationship. 
I'm not. No, but you also buy into the lonely workaholic achiever uh, who has to look a certain way and put on a certain facade, yeah, but underneath is completely unfulfilled. You, look, you're identifying with the schlub, the Brady schlub, and I'm identifying with the workaholic achiever. All no, right. No, it's not that. <laughs> I don't identify with the dopey guy, especially. You know, to be honest with you, the movie. Oh, come on, Eric. No, I'm not going to say that I identify. Seth Rogen could play you. He's certainly welcome to try, but um, I don't know. I've never been quite that much of a slacker as far as I I don't think Charlize Theron could play me. That's off the table. The thing is, like, I'm just like, I do get a little annoyed by the way that journalists are portrayed in movies, and I don't think this movie really portrays a very. He's supposed to be this, like, village voice type of, like, muckraking journalist type. Yeah, they're in the past. They're in some fantasy. And he's not, like, a very convincing one, I'll be honest with you. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a fantasy. I'll buy it. You can go see it before Quentin Tarantino or whoever else shows up and takes over the world. So uh, next week we will be uh, in can mode. I'm, I'm going to Paris uh, later in the week. So I'll already have all kinds of different European movies on the brain. And, and I'm sure Tarantino will continue to build hype, but we'll have plenty of other things to dig into. I hope you get a chance this weekend to, uh, kind of get things in order because it's about to be a bit of a wild ride. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.